0: there, God. It's me, Paul. That's right. Welcome back to our Evaluating Modern Theology series. I know it's been sporadic. Please forgive me. We are working on it, but this does require reading, study, getting stuff prepped anyway. And also, nobody should miss hearing from Mr. Paul Tillich. They really shouldn't. If you do, I'm sorry for you. But today we are going to get into something a little bit more exciting. Namely, Paul Tillich finally addressing the topic of God. It has been well over 100 pages. We are 162 pages in. And now, finally, for his systematic theology textbook, Mr. Tillich starts talking about God. Now, you might wonder, wait a second, he was talking about reason and revelation, and wasn't there more to talk about there? Yes, however, I am skipping it. Paul Tillich drowns himself in phenomenology and Wittgensteinian uh, linguistic problems until he just doesn't make sense. I feel no need to explain that to you, nor go over it. People would be coming to my door with pitchforks and torches if I actually made them sit down and read the last section of his Reason and Revelation series. He builds up this giant philosophical construct that doesn't really matter so he can get into more logic-y issues where Revelation kind of becomes important to him as a final answer so long as mankind accepts it and also creates it. Remember, his religion is humanocentric. He worships mankind, or at least he seems to believe that God worships mankind, and therefore man is the measure of all things. That is the crux, the essence, the thesis of any liberal theology in any church claiming to be Christian and modernist or postmodern or liberal or what have you. Man is really their God. Why do they go on tirades about how Jesus loved immigrants and was totally a refugee or something, even though the Bible doesn't put it in those terms or emphasize that in the slightest? Well, because that's a modern moralistic value, and they want to insert that in the Bible so that the Bible orients itself to their real God. Why do they preach tolerance of literally any sexual activity whatsoever? They say the Bible doesn't really, couldn't possibly be condemning anything unless we don't like it, because mankind is their God. Or the world is their God. uh, The capital W, World, that is the enemy of all Christendom. But that leads us to ask, what did Paul Tillich actually think about God himself? What does Paul Tillich think about our Lord? Does he even believe in God? Well, the answer is really, really fuzzy. We'll get into that. Let's go ahead and read Being and the Question of God. The basic theological question is the question of God. God is the answer to the question implied in being. The problem of reason and Revelation is secondary to that of being and God. Although it was discussed first. Giving away the game a little, Mr. Tillich has decided to inform us that he is aware that he talks about being first. It's being and God, not God and then being. He refuses to have a theological system that starts with God even if he concedes the point that God is more important than our being. Because he doesn't actually believe it. Especially if you judge the guy by his fruits, Uh, being known for picking up hookers and molesting students, I guarantee you that both in praxis and in thought, the man did not put God first. But nonetheless, he still has ideas about God. Let's see if he has anything to contribute. He is correct. Theology should start with God. I wish he would have started with God. But theology literally means theos, logos, the word concerning God. So let's keep going. Let's keep reading and see what, uh, see what Mr. Tillich says. Like everything else, reason has being, participates in being, and is logically subordinate to being. Therefore, in the analysis of reason, and of the questions implied in its existential conflicts, we have been forced to anticipate concepts which are derived from an analysis of being. In proceeding from the correlation of reason and revelation to that of being and God, we move to the more fundamental consideration. In traditional terms, we moved from the epistemological to the ontological question. The ontological question is, what is being itself? Of course, speaking of God, in being in the question of God, Mr. Tillich hones in on being first. Again, being comes first. He's very existentialist about this, and he brings up ontology which is the branch of philosophy concerned with existence and being. But even though he gets distracted by the concept of being, Mr. Tillich has a hard time defining that too. Quote, The ontological question, the question of being itself, arises in something like a metaphysical shock, the shock of possible non-being. This shock often has been expressed in the question, Why is there something? Why not nothing? But in this form, the question is meaningless, for every possible answer would be subject to the same question in an infinite regression. Thought must start with being, it cannot go behind it, as the form of the question itself shows. If one asks why there is not nothing, one attributes being, even to nothing. Thought is based on being, and it cannot leave this basis. But thought can imagine the negation of everything that is, and it can describe the nature and structure of being which give everything that is the power of resisting non-being. So let's translate this. The ontological question is, why is there something not nothing? If I try to explain that, the fact of existence means my thought, which requires my existence, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, leads to another question. The ontological question reasserting itself. So if I say we exist because of X, Y, or Z, then Somebody could say, well, why does that exist? Why does X, Y, or Z exist or not exist? Tillich posits this infinite regression where you can always ask the same question, reworded over and over and over again at any explanation, pointing towards God. Mythology, cosmogony, and metaphysics have asked the question of being both implicitly and explicitly And have tried to answer it. It is the ultimate question, although fundamentally it is the expression of a state of existence rather than a formulated question. I disagree, Mr. Tillich. What he's saying is that all religion starts with trying to answer this question. Why is there something and not nothing? The problem is, That's not actually asked by every theologian. Perhaps some of them get into ontology at some point or another, but most theologians, and especially the writers of scripture, take existence for granted. We exist. Who cares about whether or not there was a possibility of non-existence? God has revealed himself as the infinite creator of all reality. Nobody, to my knowledge anyway, was asking this weird question in theological history. Nobody was sitting around anxiously pondering the implicit, quote-unquote, question of why is there something and not nothing. This is a bad habit of Paul Tillich. He takes modern philosophy and existential concepts and copy-pastas them onto the past, assuming that everybody had the existential angst that he has, that Heidegger had, that Kant had, that Kierkegaard had. Suddenly, everybody has to be answering the same questions that they have been asking for only about a 100 years at this point. And so we must amend our thesis concerning modernist or liberal theology. Yes, they are humanocentric, they worship man. But they don't worship all of mankind. In fact, if anything, they hold nothing but contempt for ancient history, for ancient mankind, or mankind in the Middle Ages, in the pre-Renaissance, in pre-Enlightenment eras, Modernist theology worships modern man. And if they are interacting with thoughts from the past, they will have one of three viewpoints. Either hatred, everybody in the past before our current generation was evil, they were wicked, contempt, everybody before our modern enlightenment was stupid, And they didn't really do what they ought to have done. My goodness, they were such fools. Or C, a secret imprinted idea that only now we've given words to. Thomas Aquinas was actually an existentialist, don't you know? Didn't you know that he was asking the questions of being and non-being? (laughs) ha <laughs> ha, if only Mr. Thomas Aquinas or Mr. Martin Luther had been thinking like Mr. Tillich, he would have given voice to true theology. But he didn't, poor soul. He was only reaching for the ontological implications in my philosophical system. Yes, they react to the past with either hatred, contempt, or imprinting. And that is not true in and of itself. They have to do this, though, because they worship modern man. They worship post-enlightenment, neoliberal ideas, rather than seeing humanity as a whole as being subject to the sovereignty of God. Why was the Enuma Elish written? Well, either it was a contemptible and wicked act by Babylonian priests to continue solidifying their power, or they were primitive savages thinking that the sky and the water were somehow mates with one another, or they were secretly thinking about existential questions and they just had to put it in words that they had at the time. Yes, this is really how they think. Paul Tillich continues saying, The human mind has worked for thousands of years in their discovery, elaboration, and organization speaking of the categories and principles of ontology. But no agreement has been reached, although certain concepts appear in almost every ontology. Systematic theology cannot and should not enter into the ontological discussion as such yet it can and must consider these central concepts from the point of view of their theological significance. Such consideration demanded in every part of the theological system may well influence the ontological analysis indirectly, but the arena of ontological discussion is not the theological arena, although the theologian must be familiar in it. Oh, mankind has been Trying to insert our silly little religions into this for thousands of years to no avail, which convinces Mr. Tillich that, you know what, it's just not in our theological wheelhouse. You can't just answer ontological questions with God, although he will attempt later, that's a little preview for you. But, ultimately, that's a thing for philosophers. Uh, Theologians aren't supposed to really think that their theology has consequences on the world. Oh no, heaven forbid, we don't just answer philosophical questions with theology. How could we even dare? Again, Mr. Tillich wants to talk about ultimate concern in his theology, but when it comes to something of ultimate concern, like-being and non-being, something he would say is ultimate concern, he doesn't want theology to answer that. I wonder why? Oh wait, that's right. Because mankind is what he really wants to answer the questions, not God. A systematic theology means God answers that question for us, and he's really uncomfortable with that. He wants man to be able to do that. And you see, God is not allowed to answer these questions uh, because they just, they can't apply. And any categories we come up with from a theological angle or from what God says in the Bible just isn't going to do it. It doesn't apply, you see. Quote, Categories like quantity and quality have no direct theological significance and are not especially discussed. Other concepts, which often have been called categories, like movement and rest, or unity and manifoldness, are treated implicitly on the second level of analysis. Movement and rest in connection with dynamics and form, unity and manifoldness in connection with individuality and universality. Finally, skipping ahead a little... It must be stated that two of the transcendentalia of scholastic philosophy, the true and the good, verum, bonum, usually combined with being and oneness, esse unum, do not belong to pure ontology, because they are meaningful only in relation to a judging subject. Their ontological foundation, however, is discussed in connection with the duality of essence and existence oh, you see those scholastics came up with some stuff that applies to ontology, but we can't say that that's really, like, legit, and that the theologians figured it out, because, (laughs) after all, they're just judging things. And (laughs) everybody knows that if you make a judgment call, you're just wrong, unless you're Paul Tillich. Ontology and theology deal with historical man as he is given in present experience and in historical memory. An anthropology which transcends these limits, empirically toward the past or speculatively toward the future, is not a doctrine of man. It is a doctrine of the biological preparation for, or the biological continuation of, What is in a special stage in the universal development was, and is, and perhaps will be, historical man. In this case, as in all others, ontology and theology establish a relatively, but not absolutely static, a priori, overcoming the alternatives of absolutism and relativism, which threaten to destroy both of them. Now, he keeps going for 30 more pages regarding this idea. That ontology is the end-all be-all of everything. Everything is about mankind's anxieties over being and non-being. Like his ideas on reason and revelation, I have no need to actually speak of that. Again, y'all would just hate me for it. He continues going on along the same vein of thought while not recognizing his own contradiction here. If he is talking about it as it touches theology, he's automatically wrong according to his own rules. But Mr. Tillich is the Pope of modern theology, you see, so you should just believe what he says and shut up. But now, finally, having given a forty-some-odd page a diatribe regarding ontology as it interacts with theology and why theologians should not be speaking of ontology. Mr. Tillich will speak of God as relating to ontology. Let's see how he tackles the existence of God, which you might notice now that we're in page 204 It's a little odd that he didn't start with the existence of God, like some scholastics would do, but there's a reason behind it, you see. He doesn't like it when you say God exists. Regarding the common arguments that the scholastics and others have made regarding God's existence, here's what he has to say about that. There can be little doubt that the arguments are a failure insofar as they claim to be arguments. Both the concept of existence and the method of arguing to a conclusion are inadequate for the idea of God. However it is defined, the existence of God contradicts the idea of a creative ground of essence and existence. The ground of being cannot be found within the totality of beings, nor can the ground of essence and existence participate in the tensions and disruptions characteristic of the transition from essence to existence. The scholastics were right when they asserted that in God there is no difference between essence and existence, but they perverted their insight when, in spite of this assertion, they spoke of the existence of God and tried to argue in favor of it. Actually, they did not mean existence. They meant the reality, the validity, the truth of the idea of God. An idea which did not carry the connotation of something or someone who might or might not exist. Let's try to reformulate what he's saying based on what he's written thus far. Something that exists is going to have the automatic potentiality of not existing. So an infinite being proposed like God could not be said to exist because then there would be the possibility of non-existence. And thus, we can see God as the ground of all being, the answer to all ontological questions. But saying that he exists is unfair to the idea, quote-unquote, of God. So all those scholastic guys saying, yes, there is a God, an infinite creator, and he exists violates Paul Tillich's definition of existence. You see, there's no room among all the crowd of beings for God. So God must be something else. To say he exists is just wrong. That's about the dumbest thing I ever heard. He defines existence as something that has the possibility of non-existence, being and then non-being, and says that if God exists, there would be a potential for him to not be And if all the definitions concerning God are true, that's not possible. You see, if you went back in time and asked Paul Tillich whether or not God exists, he would give you this nonsense of, well, I defined something some way, and that's true, therefore this is not right to ask. He continues... The method of arguing through a conclusion also contradicts the idea of God. Every argument derives conclusions from something that is given about something that is sought. In arguments for the existence of God, the world is given and God is sought. Some characteristics of the world make the conclusion God necessary. God is derived from the world. This does not mean that God is dependent on the world. You see, you're arguing from stuff you know, and piecing together the fact that God would exist. But, aha! Your argument means that if those givens weren't around, you would have to deny God's existence. Like the teleological argument saying the world is designed and has purposes, Therefore, there must be a watchmaker, there must be somebody that created all of this. And we derive his characteristics from the fact that he must be all-powerful, all-knowing, etc. We call this God. Paul Tillich says, well, what if the world didn't exist? Would you still believe in God then? And then he would smugly chuckle until you shoved him in a locker for such a stupid reverse conclusion. The world is a given. If it did not exist, we wouldn't be here to answer those questions. This is not a counterfactual that plays into our theology. But let's play around with his argument for a second. This counterfactual of, like, well, what if you didn't have these givens? Would God still exist? The answer is yes. Duh. Anselm showed that, by definition, God exists, therefore it doesn't matter whether or not we have some sort of given. But Mr. Tillich is going to say, ah, even that rational human thought counts as a given, you see, because existence and being precedes thought, so anything you say is just a, a given here, that I can take away and say, aha, therefore you can't say that God exists. It's a dumb rhetorical trick, not an actual argument. But he continues saying, The arguments for the existence of God neither are arguments, nor are they proof of the existence of God. They are expressions of the question of God, which is implied in human finitude. This question is their truth. Every answer they give is untrue. This is the sense in which theology must deal with these arguments, which are the solid body of any natural theology. It must deprive them of their argumentative character, and it must eliminate the combination of the words existence and God. If this is accomplished, natural theology becomes the elaboration of the question of God. It ceases to be the answer to this question. The following interpretations are to be understood in this sense. The arguments for the existence of God analyze the human situation in such a way that the question of God appears possible and necessary. If you say God exists, Paul Tillich says you're wrong. If you say, well, here's how I know God exists, Paul Tillich says, all you're doing is commenting on the human condition. Even if you're not talking about the human condition. He wants you to see that because of his made-up philosophical constructs, any argument you make is null and void. And don't worry if you somehow defeat it, he's going to rejigger some definitions to make sure he can still say that you are wrong. So, is Paul Tillich... An atheist. Does he deny the existence of God? No, he's not quite an atheist. He is a possibilist. we'll say. He thinks of God in terms of question and essence and being, such to the point where he more or less has to dance around the idea of God. God is an idea that he maybe believes in, God is a necessary thing that he can't say exists, but does indeed have some sort of property which we should be holding to. Why is this? Why does Mr. Tillich hold to all this weirdness here, this undefinable semi-atheism? I would say it's because of our central thesis and its outworking. Liberal theology, or modernist theology, is a worship of modern man. Paul Tillich has to see mankind as coming first. God cannot precede mankind. God cannot enter into history and declare things to us for us to hold to in faith. God does not, in Paul Tillich's estimation, show up on top of Mount Sinai and shout out with roarous thunder the Ten Commandments for people to believe in and obey. That would mean that mankind is not the measure of all things. That would mean that the ancients weren't contemptible, stupid, or asking all the same questions, but too foggy in the mind to actually recognize his ontological ramblings. Therefore, we can't say that this God really exists in a way that has the consequence that theologians and biblical authors have been saying his existence has consequence for, for the past 4,000 years. And he would say, heaven forbid, except in his mind, heaven probably has the same problem of uh, being real but not existing that he thinks about God. Anyway, next week we will look at his uh, counter-arguments or recontextualizations of the typical arguments for God's existence. And guys, we're just going to dunk on him over and over and over again. This is some of the worst stuff I've ever read in my entire life. This is worse than the Dead Sea Scrolls. But anyway, until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.